If, you may have heard the saying that behind every successful man, there stands an astonished mother-in-law. Although, actually, I think the original is that behind every successful man, there stands a powerful and a determined woman. I think that's right. And I wonder if you noticed as we read that passage that there seem to be, in this story, two very powerful and determined women. You've got Deborah, this mighty godly woman, woman, who stands behind a fairly unremarkable man, Barak, and then you've got Jael, the woman who nailed Sisera. And you've got these two women, and you've got Barak. And the story is, is interesting, I think, in some ways, because it's told twice. Now, we only read Judges chapter 4, but if you flick over and see Judges chapter 5, you see the song of Deborah. And actually, what Deborah does is she retells the whole story in poetic form. And we haven't read that, but we will dip into that, because there's bits of chapter 5 that help us understand chapter 4. So the story's told there twice, if you like. But I want us to understand here what's going on and what it does mean for us in the week ahead. And the first thing is that as you come to the book of Judges, and if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you'll know that there is this depressing cycle of sin through the whole book. And history teaches us that history teaches us nothing. And in Judges, you have the people who God has saved slipping away from God. And they go after other gods. And so God judges them, and he brings in another nation, another people, someone who oppress them and defeat them. And then you have this period of hardship and oppression. Maybe for 18 years here, it was 20 years. And then the people cry out, God hears, he raises up a judge or a savior, and there's peace and prosperity in the land for as long as the judge lives. And then he dies, and then, oops, the people forget about the Lord again. And they abandon God, and you have this cycle again of abandoning of judgment, of crying out, of God hearing, of saving, of abandoning, and so on. And it's this depressing cycle of sin. Now, I love the book of Judges. I think it's one of my favorite books. It's so real. I think it's got so much to teach us. But I was just chatting with Andy this morning, and he was saying, it's actually also such a horrific book that almost by the end of the book, you can hardly bear to read any more as you see what this cycle of sin is like. And even, we haven't obviously read the first few chapters here, but even in the first few chapters, you've already seen there have been a couple of these cycles. Just looking across at chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, verse 7, you'll see the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and saved, served the Baals and the Asherahs. So you've got them abandoning God. Then you've got God's judgment in verse 8. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of a bunch of people. And then verse 9, they cry out to the Lord and he raises up for them Othniel, who saves them. But then by verse 12, they've once again forgotten, forsaken the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's a second cycle begins with Ehud. And Ehud is such a great character. He's the one who plunges his sword into Eglon, into this fat baddie, if you like. So that the, well, you know the story. It's a brilliant one. And then, and then they forget the Lord. You've got Shamgar. He's only got one verse in verse 31. But he's got quite a remarkable phrase. He too saved Israel. It's almost an aside. And it seems incredible that by chapter 4, already, once again, the Israelites are having to learn this history lesson again. Look at verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's going to become a stuck record kind of repeat through the whole of the book of Judges, but they've forgotten again. And who's this new oppressor? Well, you see him in verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And he was the local superpower, Jabin. 
Although the main character that we read about through the whole story is his commander, his general, and that's Sisera. And you see him in verse uh, 2, halfway through. The commander of Jabin's army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he, had, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. And they'd cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. 20 years. Some of you are probably toddlers 20 years ago. Can you imagine what it's like to have only known that for 20 years? And as a result, life in Israel was totally miserable. How do we know that? Well, look across at chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And this is Deborah filling in some of the story for us. Five, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. Ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates. And not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Village life in Israel was at a standstill. People didn't even dare to use the main roads. They, shrunk, they, they, they skulked along the back roads. They were so demoralized, they hadn't even bothered to make any weapons. And there were no weapons to fight with. And why did it happen? I don't know if you notice the reason there in Deborah's, in, verses, in verse 8. Why did it happen? Verse 8, when they chose new gods, that's why it happened. People had once again abandoned God, the God Yahweh who had saved them, their covenant-keeping God. And you've got this depressing cycle of sin once again. You see, everything's fine as long as there's a judge around, but as soon as the judge snuffs it, the people fall back into sin. And I think it's a bit like uh, driving from Dundee to Aberdeen. And you're going on quite happily at 90 miles an hour. And what do you see? You see a police car or you see a speed camera. And there are about 1,000 of them between here and Aberdeen. And as soon as you see that, you break down to 69 miles an hour and you go past. And as soon as the speed camera's gone, you kind of speed up again. And it's, the problem is that what's happened when you see the speed camera is not really a change of heart, that all of a sudden you believe in the highway code. But no, you, you just don't want to be found out. And the reason that Israel so quickly abandons God is because despite the fact that again and again he saves them, again and again he rescues them, there's no real change of heart. And doesn't it, doesn't, doesn't it seem so strange, so fickle, that they abandon God so quickly, that they're so slow to learn? But it, it is strange, but then you think about yourself and you think, isn't it so strange that I so quickly fall back into sin? I so quickly fall back into the same patterns. You know, I said I wouldn't lose my temper this week, and I did it again. Or there's something else that may be nipping at you and plaguing you, and you do it again. Or you think, well, this week I'm going to be on fire, and yet our prayers do go cold, and our hearts are cold. And we, we, we're depressing, this sin of Israel is depressingly close to home for us, that we ourselves go through this cycle of sin as well, don't we? And we need to ask ourselves, Sometimes, is our religion dependent on the habits of a lifetime? Is it dependent on the way we've been brought up or the expectations of our peer group? Or have we actually had a change of heart? Are we actually allowing Jesus to change us from the inside out? Because the sad fact is we can't avoid this spiral of sin. It's a bit like our children's bedroom. I don't know if you've ever spent half of Saturday tidying up the bedroom. Sorry, guys. But by Sunday morning, 
the carpet is kind of, you can't see it for the, for the stuff that's all over it, and the clothes, and the teddy bears, and everything else. And you go in, and you're in your bare foot, and you stand on something spiky. And there's a sad, inevitable predictability to this cycle of tidying up somebody's bedroom and it becoming messy again. And in Judges, you have this depressing cycle of sin, and we know it in our own lives, despite our best resolutions. And it shows us, I think Judges, the book of Judges, shows us that there is nothing fresh or exciting about sin. Absolutely nothing fresh. As I said, this this chapter 4 that we read begins with, once again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's that... It's that refrain. And by the end of Judges, you've heard it so often that you're going to be muttering in your sleep. And it teaches us that, yes, there's nothing new about sin. There's nothing fresh or exciting about sin. There's actually, it's quite difficult to be creative in sin. There's a certain monotony to it. It's all been done before. You know, whatever it is, the forbidden fruit always looks enticing. The grass on the other side always looks greener. But sin is actually a boring routine. It is not fresh excitement like the Israelites, don't we find ourselves simply going through the same things again and again? And so the New Testament rightly says that we are slaves of sin. We're in bondage to it, and it never delivers on its promise. And you note, also looking at chapter 4, that this depressing cycle of sin, it actually, the sin blinds people from their need for help. Look at what we read in in, uh, uh, verse 3. Because, this, this is Sisera, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord. It, how many years did it take before they cried out to Yahweh? It took them 20 years to realize that they needed to cry out. And in Ehud, the story before in chapter 3, it had taken them 18 years before they cried out. And the terrible thing about sin is that it blinds us to seeing our need for help. So that we don't even see our need to cry out to God. And so, just the first application here on this, this depressing cycle of sin for us tonight is that if we're allowing small compromises into our lives, if there are things that we know are wrong and yet we're not dealing with them, then stop. Do something about it today. Don't wait 20 years. Don't let sin trick you or trip you up or blind you. It is not the, it is not the attractive thing that it claims to be. And we do need to deal carefully, radically with our own hearts. But then remember, too, as we were looking at this morning, as we're going to see in a minute, that we are dealing with a gracious God. We are dealing with a God who will hear us, a God who fights for us. This is not all about just us working up something. But he heard the Israelites cry for help, and he answered. And he hears hears our cry for help, and he answers, and he rescues us, just as he rescued them. And so that takes us to our second point. The first is that there is this depressing cycle of sin that the Israelites have fallen into once again. But the second is that in this story, there are three quite unlikely saviors that God brings along. One of the reasons I love the book of Judges is because it, you might call it the unlikely choices of God. He has the oddest kind of people to use to save Israel, hasn't he? Uh, in chapter 3, you had Ehud, who's the left-hander. He's a bit crafty, a bit underhand. After Barak, we're gonna, you're going you're gonna to come to the story of Gideon. And Gideon's a total wimp. And then after him, you've got Jeph, um, Jephthah. And Jephthah makes this foolish vow, and then he foolishly keeps it and sacrifices his daughter. And then you come to womanizing Samson. And you think, Judges is just such an odd bunch of people. 
And here in this story, there are also three unlikely characters. You have a godly woman, Deborah. And I think the remarkable thing about Deborah is... Sorry, I'll come to that in a minute. And she has to prod this reluctant man, Barak, into action. But the finale of the story goes to jail. And she's the one who nails it. But Deborah is the only person, probably, in the book of Judges, the only one who stands out, the only hero, if you like, who doesn't have any obvious flaws. She's introduced to us in verses 4 and 5 like this. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have her, their disputes decided. So Deborah clearly had some kind of leadership role in Israel. An interesting thing, actually, if you read through the whole of Judges, is that the priests seem almost completely absent. They weren't leading the people as they should have been. They, they weren't interpreting the law. They're a dead loss. And in a spiritual vacuum like that, the only person really who stands out is Deborah, a prophetess. She's the one giving spiritual leadership at this time in Israel. Now, there's been a lot of different opinions as to assessing what this means. On the one hand, it may be proof that women can lead in the church. On the other hand, it may be proof that this is the ultimate judgment on Israel because there are no men. They have to end up with a woman leading them. And I think if you look at the commentaries, what's uh, interesting is that the commentators will fall down on one side or the other, not necessarily dependent on the text, but dependent on their own presuppositions as to which of those answers ought to be right. So we need to have a look tonight at what the Bible says so that we can understand. And I think our best clue for understanding Deborah is, once again, the words of Deborah herself, as you find them in chapter 5. And we've already read this in chapter 5, verse 7. Do you remember, she said, Village life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. She's not bashful about her role there, is she? But she describes herself as a mother in Israel. So how do we understand that? Well, mothers have a massively important leadership role in the life of the family. But the Bible does make it clear, nevertheless, that the father is the head of the family. And I think these chapters, or this description of Deborah of herself, seems to be saying that although Deborah was a spiritual leader in Israel, she didn't seek to take on the headship role. And I think this becomes crystal clear in her dealings with Barak. Because the key to it is that she empowers, she encourages Barak to take that leadership role. She's not trying to usurp him or usurp his headship. And Barak is possibly the weaker character. Possibly Deborah herself could have done the job better than him. But she encourages him to lead. And she encourages the people to follow him. Deborah wasn't married to Barak. We, we learn about her husband there in verse 4, chapter 4. But just as Eve was to be a helper to Adam, so Deborah here is a helper to Barak. And she helps him to fulfill, fulfill his God-given role to be a deliverer for Israel. And I think there are probably lessons here and rebukes for all of us. I think there are lessons here for us as men. Because isn't it our natural tendency to abdicate our God-given responsibilities, both in the church and in our families? And perhaps for women, that they're too easy to take, they're too ready to take over. I mean, for me personally, I always do what Joanne tells me to do. And she told me to say that. But just as with Adam, the primary fault, the responsibility lays with us men to pick up our game, to be men and to take responsibility, because that is, how, that is the God-given role that we've been given. And there is a crucial, if very challenging role for women too, 
to find ways of encouraging men to be men, to take the lead without taking over. But anyway, before we write off Barak, and with him all men as wimps, do note that Barak does take action. And in the Bible, he's the one who's commended for this, this victory. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel's giving a brief history of the way that God has been dealing with the nation of Israel. And as he, as he lists all the different people, he lists Barak. But Deborah doesn't get a mention. And actually, when you jump over to Hebrews chapter 11, you know in Hebrews chapter 11 where you have this roll call of all the heroes of the faith, and the writer of the Hebrews goes through all sorts of people from the Old Testament. Who's mentioned? Barak is mentioned. Who's not mentioned? Deborah's not mentioned. And I think Barak is not a total wuss. He's actually got a very tough mission here. Do you remember we read earlier in chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, about how demoralized the people were. There wasn't a weapon to be found. The people were using the back roads. Barak has no army. He's got people who've been hiding under their duvets for 20 years. And here he is facing the entire Canaanite panzer division. And as he stands at the top of Mount Tabor, he's got this ragtag army of volunteers with pitchforks and spades. And as he looks from his vantage point, he's up on a hill so he can see everybody. He looks down, he sees this massive rank, arrayed, all these people, 900 chariots spread out, covering the plain in front of him. And Deborah prods him from behind and says, go on, be a man. And he might have thought, oh yeah, that's easy for you to say. But actually, let's have a look at what, what is going on here at that point in verse 14. This is chapter 4, verse 14. Because verse 14 is the hinge verse that helps us understand this story. As an aside, you'll know that in Western storytelling, we always put the climax near the end, don't we? So in Agatha Christie book, the whodunit comes on about the second last page, doesn't it? Well, most Hebrew storytelling, and most, therefore, of the Old Testament, the key verse or the key point is in the middle. And you have the build-up to it, and you have the implications of it afterwards. But quite often, you find the middle point is the crucial one that helps you understand the whole story. And that's exactly what you've got here. So look at verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Now, Barak still has to step out in faith because it was only as he began to run down the mountain that he saw that God had moved. So look at verse, uh, well, keep reading verse 14. So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, that is, as he was moving, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. So God was going to fight for them, but Barak still had to take that step of faith of starting to charge down the, the, the mountain with 10,000 people without any weapons. And he was obedient to God. And I think Barak gets a bad press as you read this because it seems the only time he opens his mouth is to show a distinct lack of backbone. Remember how Barak had first summoned him? In verses 6 and 7, have a look at that. Verse 6, she sent for Barak, son of Abinuam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go. Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And how does Barak respond? Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. But I think he's not actually being as spineless as that might appear. It's not that he wants a woman to hold his hand as he goes into battle. 
But it's maybe more than that, that he won't go, if you like, without the word of the Lord going with him, without what Deborah represents as the spiritual leader of Israel. And I think you can see that because in verse 9, there is an alternative reading. If you look at the footnote in verse 9, if you read it with the footnote there, it would say, very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, but on the expedition you are undertaking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And a more modern translation, the ESV, translates verse 9 like this, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. You see, because I think the primary issue is not whether Barak is personally lacking in faith or guts, but God's primary concern is the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord, that the victory is his, that he can choose how to bring it about, that he can give the decisive hammer blow to jail, a housewife living nowhere near the battlefield, if he chooses to, so that the honor is God's too, so that Barak can't say, oh, I did it with my great strategy, I did it with my great army. Remember, Gideon is going to have to reduce his army down to 300 people so that they'll learn the lesson that it's God who fights. And it's here, it's God who decides how the battle will play out so that only God will receive the honor. And so in this depressing cycle of sin, you do have three unlikely saviors. But behind it all, behind the story behind the story, through all this, as you see, we have one warrior God. A depressing cycle of sin. Three unlikely saviors that God uses, but in the back of it, there is one warrior God. And I think you see that particularly when you go back to verse 14. You go back to the top of Mount Tabor. And, and try to imagine it for a moment. There at the top of Mount Tabor, you have Barak, and you have his very small band of fearful people. And down below him, Sisera has taken up the tactically superior position, and he's spread out his chariots. And on the hard-baked level plain, the Kishon Valley, it was ideal for, cal for cavalry, for wheeled chariots. It was a plain ideal for his army, for chariots. And then you've got Barak quaking in his boots. So how does the Lord fight for Israel? How did this victory come about? Well, again, let's look at chapter 5, because you get the answer in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 4. O oh Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. And verse 21, the river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon, march on, my soul, be strong. One historian during the First World War was writing about that area of Palestine and of the battles that went on there. And he said that even quarter of an hour's rain on that clay soil made any cavalry movements impossible because the cavalry got stuck. So if it's dry, it's the ideal place for Sisera and his chariots. But if there's a bit of heavy rain, they're going to get bogged down. A couple of years ago, as a family, we were on holiday in northern France. And we were on holiday near Agincourt. And um, you'll all know your English history very well. Um, but the Battle of Agincourt, about 600 years ago or something like that, you had the vast French army, and you had this Henry V with his bedraggled little army who had got no energy or strength left. But what happened? How did, how did Harry win the battle? Well, when we were there, there was a reenactment, and there were horses and everything else, and the French were very good. They'd reenacted it so well that it was a dreary, raining day, just as it had been for much of our holiday. And the reason why Henry V was able to beat the French was because there'd been so much rain and so much mud that the French cavalry all got stuck 
and they fell over, and the French had very heavy armor on, and they actually got bogged down in the mud. Whereas King Henry had been marching through France, and his guys didn't have any heavy armor. And so they were able to run through and around the French and kill them as they got stuck in the mud. And in some ways, that's the same as what's going on here. You've got the Lord opening the heavens. The heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. And when Barak came running down the mountain, he found the Lord had already fought for him. The battle was effectively over before it had begun. And the victory that day was the Lord's. It owed nothing to Barak's brilliance, nothing to his military strategy. And who would have thought that the mighty general Sisera would not actually die with his troops? But here at the end of the passage, as you look down, he pegs it with jail. And without question, this was the Lord's victory because he was Israel's warrior God. So what do we learn from this passage? What do we learn tonight that will take us into the week ahead? Is it merely a list of moral lessons? Do we merely learn lessons for life? For example, never fight a battle when it's raining or choose very carefully who you go camping with or uh, Men should always do what their wives tell them, especially if their wife's name is Deborah, but not if it's jail. I mean, what, what do we learn from this passage that's not just a moral lesson? Well, this passage teaches us something about God's character. It teaches us something about who our God is. And in this passage, it teaches us that our God is a warrior God, that he fights for his people. And 300 times in the Old Testament, God is described as the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of the armies of heaven. And it's a central theme of the Bible that God fights for his people and he fights for his honor. And it's not a very polite message. It's not very politically correct. You know, we might prefer just to talk about God as a God of love, one of infinite patience and, and mercy. And that is true. But if we only ever talk about that, we end up with a lopsided view of God, a bit like a plant that's growing towards the sun, but isn't actually, it hasn't grown straight because it doesn't have a full picture of who God is. And in this passage, there's nothing gray about this God. There's nothing polite. This is not a polite God for tea parties with the vicar. This is a God, if you like, with the sharp edges still on. This is a God who fights for his people, who fights for his honor, who has no tolerance of evil. And as you come to the New Testament, is Jesus just the cuddly baby in a manger? No, weren't his disciples also terrified when they saw him at work? Think of the language of the blistering woes that Jesus pronounces against the religious leaders. And when Jesus returns in glory, will it be happy every after? Will it be everyone gets prizes? No, Jesus said that for most people, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be ultimate horror. And our God is no tame God. He is a pure and a holy God who burns against evil, but who fights for his people and who fights for his honor. I mean, the one thing that has changed when you come from Judges into the New Testament is that the battlefield has changed. The military images of the Old Testament give way to the spiritual realities of the New Testament. And the great victory in the New Testament is not on the plains of the Kishon River, but it's on the cross of Calvary. And on the cross, not only did Jesus take our place as our substitute, not only did he take the punishment we deserve, but he also won a great victory. And God's greatest victory over the devil and all the powers of evil is not just seen in Barak's day, but it's seen on the cross. 
It would be helpful if you look across to Colossians uh, chapter 2 for a moment, just for a couple of verses. Colossians chapter 2 uh, from verse 13, 13 to 15. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He, forgive us, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And in those couple of verses, you've got legal language and you've got military language as well. There's this legal cancelling of our sin that the record of all our wrongdoing is nailed to the cross. It is dealt with. And Christ died to take that right punishment that we deserve, the wrath of a holy God against us. And what did you and I do to make that happen? Absolutely nothing. That was our God fighting for us. But there's military language here too, particularly in verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And it's a picture like of a Roman general coming back from a battle, and behind him are the, are the defeated hordes. And in battle, the battle that Jesus won triumphantly on the cross dealt with our sin, but it also put the final nail over all the powers and authorities, over the devil and all his cronies. And God fights.